Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Matthew Vaughan's 2011 film, X-Men First Class. But before any of that... I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about this potential Blue Beetle and Booster Gold movie. But Seb, our DC expert, obviously you weren't around to actually tell us a little bit more about this. So can you explain more about Blue Beetle and Booster Gold to me and what this movie might contain? Yeah, so, well, because... Blue Beetle was originally um, a character from Charlton Comics, who were a um, comics company from, I think, probably maybe from like the 1940s, who eventually got bought by DC um, in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. And he, so he's one of the characters who uh, the Watchmen characters are based on. He, he's basically Night Owl. Um, but you had a couple of different versions. You originally had um, a cop called Dan Garrett, um, who had this magical scarab that gave him powers and he put on a blue leotard and fought crime. And then they retconned Dan Garrett to being an archaeologist who found the magical scarab uh, that gave him powers and enabled him to fight crime. Um, then you had Ted Cord, who's probably like the, the kind of longest serving, most enduring version of the Blue Beetle. And he was an inventor who was, I think he was a student of Dan Garrett's. And um, he sort of, he became friends with him and inherited the scarab when he died, but couldn't get the scarab to work. So didn't have any powers, but he was like a sort of genius inventor and businessman. And so he built himself loads of gadgets and stuff to fight crime with. So he fought crime as the Blue Beetle. Um, Then in the 80s, he was a member of the Justice League International, which was the sort of lighthearted character comedy take on the Justice League that is one of my favorite comics ever. And it was in the course of that that he met Booster Gold, who again we've discussed on here before, but who is guy from the future, um, disgraced former football player from the future, working as a janitor in a superhero museum, who steals a load of superhero paraphernalia and travels back to 1985 to become a superhero. Um, they became friends in Justice League International, and you had a load of awesome buddy comedy with the two of them, just absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, Ted Cord then got killed off um, as a, as part of DC's attempt to remove anything vaguely joyful and fun from their <laughs> universe. 
Um, but then in the Infinite Crisis crossover, they introduced a new Blue Beetle, um, a Mexican teenager called Jaime Reyes. Well, I say Mexican, no, he's from El Paso, Mexican-American, um, who found the Scarab and actually got it to work and basically unlocked the secrets of it by accident, which is that it was actually um, alien technology that was um, sort of the advance scout for an alien invasion by a race called the reach um he had a really really good sort of 20 or 30 issue series that was really good fun enjoyable it's i've just i've always told james that he should read it because it's the closest i've ever seen to a spider-man comic in the dc universe because it's this you know superpowered teenager juggling his life and being a superhero it's really really good fun but it looks like they're going to use jaime in the movie rather than ted which even though Jaime isn't the one who's got a history with Booster, it does kind of make sense because he's got powers and he's got a cool costume that that will look good on screen. Although it didn't look good on screen when they did him in Smallville. Like, if you look up <laughs> Blue Beetle Smallville, it's just embarrassing. It really, really is. Um, but and yeah, it's interesting. So because, yeah, Jaime was the name that sounded like that's the character they want to use in a Blue Beetle Booster Gold movie. Yeah. But in the last week, I mean, it was also on last week's mini-sode that I mentioned that there was this Lex Luthor interview that turned up in uh, Fortune. Yeah. Um, and there is a veiled reference in there to, like, other companies in the universe that Luthor is, LexCorp is competing with. Mm. Um, Wayne Industries and, I think, Cord Industries. Yeah, I mean... So, I- so that probably ties into what DC are doing with kind of, like... You know, there's already a dead Robin and this and that and the other. Yeah, I think Ted was probably around exists. previously. Yeah, I mean, partly just chucking Cord Industries in there is probably just more of an in joke than anything. But I could totally see the setup of of Blue Beetle being here's this young kid inheriting the mantle of a previous hero that we hear about. It could even be as it was in the comics when when Booster first met him that you know it establishes that Booster and and Ted were friends. And now Jaime's come along and has taken his place kind of thing. You, you could get kind of good material out of that, I think. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a slightly Ant-Man kind of setup, having the sort of the older original inventor who isn't actually this version of the hero yeah. um, and having a younger guy come in. It makes all kinds of sense to have Jaime, though, not least because it at least improves the diversity a little bit, rather than just <laughs> having two more white guys headlining a film. So... Um, I'd, I'd be reasonably excited about this because I love these characters. Okay, so we'll move on now to our comic book movie and TV news segment. And this week it's actually all Marvel. Um, sorry, DC fans, it's just it's just been a big week for Marvel stuff. Um, and the big one is obviously that Marvel announced um, a, a, a kind of a, a change to their Phase 3 slate and potentially some release dates that extend phase three or maybe start off phase four it's not all clear at the moment but what we do now know is that after after captain america civil war doctor strange guardians of the galaxy volume two and spider-man and thor ragnarok and black panther and avengers infinity war part one (laughs) we will now get a new film that we didn't know about which is ant-man and the wasp we'll then get captain marvel then avengers infinity war part two then in humans, and there are three untitled or unannounced films uh, put onto the Marvel slate for 2020, uh, which in itself isn't a surprise, but it's probably Marvel putting down uh, 
uh, <laughs> a little flag around those dates saying, hey, Warner Brothers, you stay away from these three, okay? Yeah, you, and stay, that's away also... from these, you stay away from these three because we're going to have films moving from those dates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will definitely announce films that are going to be released on those dates to begin with and then reshuffle them at a later date. <laughs> when, when basically, those unnamed films are all sequels to whichever of the other films go down best. Um, I would I would hazard a guess that Spider-Man will almost certainly be one of them, given that it's released. Yeah. The first one is released in July 2017. I would I would guess the July 2021 is almost certainly a Spider-Man movie. But whether that's still a Marvel Studios movie at that point remains to be seen. <laughs> I can't wait for the 2020 Spider-Man film to retell his origin again, because it'll have been three years. They'll get itchy feet. <laughs> um, guys, what, what jumps out to you here? I mean, obviously the big one is that we now have an Ant-Man sequel, um, which I don't think any of us... Re- I, think, I think Phase 3 looked like it was very full and that we'd probably have to wait until Avengers Infinity War Part 2 to get more Ant-Man. But we are getting more Ant-Man before that. And uh, the the big shock here was that it's not just Ant-Man, it's Ant-Man and the Wasp and Evangeline Lilly's character is actually being upgraded to a, a, a co-lead, a title character, or at least we hope that's what it means. Well... <laughs> It's good news and bad, really, because, you know, it's great news for those of us who enjoyed Ant-Man and, and who enjoyed the character of Hope and can't wait for her to be the Wasp, you know, because coming out of the end of that film, that really was the thing that I wanted to see. Um, and it's, you know, it's good that um, that they are, you know, kind of putting a female character, they're putting her in the title of the film. The downside is that now the first Marvel film to have a female character in its title is one where she's not even the sole lead character. She's an and. They they had to bump back Captain Marvel to do it as well. Exactly. So they've pushed back what would have been the actual proper solo female-led film in favour of one where, to be fair, you know, I'm sure the Wasp will be a significant part of this film and will be every bit as much the lead as um, Ant-Man. I I have faith, based on the first Ant-Man film, that that's what they'll do, but it still feels a little bit like a compromise, you know. Uh, And for the second time as well, they've moved Captain Marvel. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, do they even want to make that film? Yeah, it, it's it just, doesn't it feel feels like a bit like it's going to gonna keep getting further away. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, I, that, that, I think it's definitely anyone who is upset about Captain Marvel moving back and the fact that, yes, the first time we get to see a female-led Marvel movie is moving even further away that it's going to be, you know, four years from now before we see that movie. That is a real shame. But at the same, po- at the, at the same time, between July 2018 and March 2019, we will get two movies that have female lead characters. And well, will we? <laughs> <laughs> and, and as much as I, as much as I, as I think it is disappointing that Captain Marvel is the one to move back. I remember when we were talking about this Phase Three being shuffled the first time around when the Spider-Man movie was announced, and we were all very confused that Black Panther was then going to be taking place after Infinity War Part 1. And obviously, this shuffle has allowed Marvel to find a way to bring Black Panther back to where they originally planned it to be. And, I mean, Captain Marvel arriving before a big intergalactic crossover of Avengers Infinity War Part 2, which is certainly when I'm expecting to probably see the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers we know and love on the screen at the same time. Mm -hmm. It... It makes sense there in the schedule. Um, 
it, it certainly seems like we're kind of going from these from these grounded movies towards a more a more cosmic trend when we go Captain Marvel, Infinity War Part Two, Inhumans, three movies on the bounce. Yeah, I mean, you know, it makes sense in storytelling terms, but anything can make sense in storytelling terms if you well, this, if you write think, the right story. You could do a Captain Marvel movie where the first movie isn't really cosmic in the slightest because it's about an Air Force pilot discovering that she has powers. Like you don't have to send her off into space the moment you introduce her. So if if the justification is, you know, she's better saved for the cosmic stuff, well, fair enough, but why not do a Black Widow movie while you're waiting or something? You know, it's just... I, I, I don't want to feel like we're just banging this drum all of the time, but it's hard not to feel like there is a great reluctance to stick a female character front and centre. And I understand, like, the the general Hollywood context reasons for that, but this is Marvel, and like almost everything they've done that's been successful has been as a result of going against what people expected might have been a success. So if they can take the chance with Captain America, who's a boring character who nobody likes, with Iron Man, who's a character <laughs> who nobody's heard of, with the Guardians of the Galaxy, who are ridiculously obscure characters, why can't they take that chance with one of the female characters that are in Marvel Comics? It's just... You know, I'm not accusing them of doing it deliberately. I'm just saying it looks like they're doing it deliberately. Yeah, yeah, um, I, yeah. I certainly think it, it does. It does give this phase three lineup a, a, a very different feel. Um, but I, I, I wonder that when when we do get to 2018 and 2019, that it's it's going to feel pretty exciting. That I mean, probably by that point, we're going to have had a Wonder Woman movie and. Um, a Justice League movie where Wonder Woman is is one of the leads, and you know, by the time we get to Avengers: Infinity War Part Two, you would hope that Captain Marvel and the Wasp and Black Widow and um, Scarlet Witch are all playing very very prominent roles in that movie. Um, yeah, and and there are there are other characters out there, and you know, we're we're about, we're about to talk in the next couple of minutes about two shows we're very excited about on the small screen that are both Marvel movies with female lead characters um so it's it's not as if it's a barren wasteland but you're right it's it's weird to kind of go oh we've heard about three new marvel movies and they're making a movie with ant-man that has now bumped the wasp up to co-lead and, and still feel kind of disappointed about it because of the way that mm. the way that things have shaken out yeah basically yeah <laughs> um okay well, well we'll move on to our um second piece of news now and this relates to the <laughs> film that at least for now we are still assuming is the final movie in marvel's phase three and that is in humans um, and a long-standing rumor has been that Vin Diesel would be in line to play Black Bolt if that film ever came to pass. And Vin Diesel, as uh, as subtle as he ever is, has has pretty much said that that is the case this week. Um, so to, to, to quote um, Mr. Diesel, uh, we've heard a lot of, ma- of talk about Marvel wanting to have me play a character that doesn't use my voice, the actor said. So my voice is used for Groot and my presence is used for the other character. <laughs> so Vin Diesel's playing Black Bolt, right, guys? In the, in the Inhumans movie, that yeah, is happening. Not yeah. a lot of wiggle room there. So. <laughs> are there are there any other mute like Marvel characters he could, that he could he could be, be playing? playing Lockjaw? I mean, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, does Vin Diesel make sense for Black Bolt? I, I I don't know much about the character. I read some of him on the Fantastic Four comics that were recommended to me um, when he was trapped in 
a glass cage of emotion. <laughs> what, <laughs> would, would Diesel make sense for that character? I mean, Black Bolt just has to kind of stand around, to be honest. Stand around and gesture occasionally. You'd have to think that, it, that if anyone's suited to playing a character whose real name is Blackagar Boltagon, then it's probably going to be Vin Diesel. Oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's either got to be Vin Diesel or The Rock. So, you know, for Vin Diesel to get in there first. It, yeah, it just needs to have imposing physical presence. I think, I guess, I mean, I don't know a huge amount about the Inhumans and about Black Bolt, but, you know, I think the impression that he needs to give off, because the thing about Black Bolt is, if he ever speaks, it will unleash a terrifying torrent of destruction. So you do kind of need to have that physical presence that gets that across, you know. And so I can see that with Vin Diesel, you know, sitting there with his mouth shut, thinking if Vin Diesel ever speaks... Well, if Indies never speaks, it'll be Groot, but that's by the by. <laughs> so the other two things that I've that I've kind of seen about this character. So he's part of a royal family. So one of two questions: is there a, is there a kind of regal air about him? And the second is that I mean, I've, I've just been reading the start of Secret Wars, and he seems to, or, and and he was one of the characters that shoots Hulk out into space at the start of um, Planet Hulk. Like, is is he part of this kind of like? intelligentsia cabal in in the illuminati yeah um so the the illuminati is reed richards tony stark black bolt namor professor x and dr strange have i missed any james did you say black panther oh and black panther yeah Yeah. but so they're they're a bunch of smarty pants characters right yeah it's it's a bunch of smarty pants it's a boys club for guys who think they're smarter than everybody else and they sit around and they kind of each discuss um, what's going on in the various you know areas of, of superheroing and all the things that they can do that they think will improve the world? Um, you know, they're first introduced in um, Bendis's New Avengers, and I think sort of one of the first things that happens is you, you first learn of them when Tony Stark comes to them and they, and is talking about um, the registration act that he knows is about to happen, and also in the storyline involving a character called the Sentry, who I don't even want to get into now, um, but. <laughs> Yeah, they are just basically a, a cabal of superpowered, intelligent people who think that they can run the world better than everyone else, so secretly convene to try and do so. How does Black Bolt do that? Because he doesn't. He sits there and, and sort of gesticulates when he agrees to, with things. To be fair, Professor X is telepathic. Oh, yeah. Ah, <laughs> we need a telepath in the Marvel Universe then. <laughs> um, to, to, to he doesn't out. exist in the Marvel universe. And the regal thing is that is that a, is, is it, yeah, does he, um, does he well, have the air, or is it is it just that these happen to be the royal family? The reason he seems kind of regal is because Medusa does all the talking for him. So like he stands there, and his wife essentially issues his commands and edicts. Right. And it's by like the way, me, me, you know, he's so regal he doesn't even talk. I am waiting for the day that they announce that Jessica Chastain is playing Medusa because the only sensible casting. <laughs> Jessica Chastain has, has talked about wanting to play a superhero role before, um, and goddamn, someone needs to like hurry up and like just find find the role for her. <laughs> I was, that that is the role for her. <laughs> I was watching uh, The Martian last night, which I, I know is a, a film that uh, James also very much enjoyed, and I was I was finding it fun going. Oh, hey, there's, um, there's Michael Pena. Yeah, there's Michael Pena out of Ant Man, and there's Kate Mara out of the Fantastic Four, and there's Chiwetelagia Four, who's about to be in Doctor Strange, and you, you can just hop around and do that. And I was looking at Mackenzie Davis and going, Ooh, is that Captain Marvel? That could be Captain Marvel. <laughs> and who's Jessica Chastain going to be? 
It's that you, you're just you're just kind of <laughs> counting down. Like you, it's get, it's got to the point where you're watching a big movie like that and going, Matt Damon hasn't played a superhero yet. That's weird. <laughs> when's he going to when's he going to show someone? Because the assumption is just everyone will at some point now. Uh, <laughs> I did like as as packed as that film was was with Marvel characters. Later, they're going. They have a big sequence where he's like, "I'm going to be Iron Man." Yes, yeah. He's, <laughs> a, he's saying, "I'm okay. going to be Iron Man," while uh, Winter Soldier and Sue Storm are listening in, <laughs> and Ant Man's little buddy. <laughs> I forget his name, but he is uh, he is my favorite of those three. <laughs> um, we we got off track with Vin Diesel. Um, yeah, in, in, in the same way that um, all, all of uh, Hollywood actors are being slowly put into comic book movies, um, none more so than the rest of the Fast and the Furious cast, where literally, if, <laughs> if you've been in one of those movies, you're probably going to be cast as a superhero at some point. Um, <laughs> Is that because of your low price tag? <laughs> no, huge price tag, I bet. <laughs> I bet Vin Diesel's not cheap. They're probably it's the only way you can lower his rates is by getting him to uh, getting him to say a combined total of four words in two different movies. <laughs> That's very. I like how you you knew to say four rather than three because you remembered that there's one extra one. <laughs> I don't pay me the big bucks to present this podcast for nothing. <laughs> Let's move on to our final piece of news now, and this is kind of. Um, a bit of combination news for Jessica Jones and for um, Agent Carter, the two female-led um, Marvel shows that I alluded to earlier. And um, both of them have kind of uh, made some casting announcements this week. Um, we'll start with Agent Carter. They have cast their season two villain, which is uh, Madame Mask. She'll be played by Wynne Everett, um, who uh, was a former star in the newsroom. Uh, we know that Lottie Verbeek uh, will be joining the cast. Um, she'll be playing uh, Jarvis's wife, Anna Jarvis. Austin Reggie Austin will be joining as a new love interest for Peggy. And Curry Graham will also be joining the cast. Uh, he will be playing Whitney Frost's husband. Uh, Dominic Cooper's returning. Bridget, Bridget Regan's returning as Dottie Underwood. Uh, Agent Sousa's returning, Agent Thompson's returning, so Enver Gokaj and Chad Michael Murray fans can rejoice. What do you think about all all these announcements? I'm excited about a Madame Mask in in, uh, Agent (laughs) Carter. I don't really know the actress, but most of this, apart from maybe Chad Michael Murray, who I don't really see what place he has in this, um, all all of these sound pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I mean, Madame Mask's a good sort of Los Angeles villain if they're moving mm. west coasts. So. Inspired by Hollywood icons like Hedy Lamarr and Lauren Bacall. That's exactly, oh, yeah, that's exactly yeah, the kind of character I want facing off against Peggy Carter. I mean, you've, you... read Hawkeye, you've read Hawkeye as well, so you, mm. you know Madame Mask. Yes. That's basically the main thing I know Madame Mask from. Plus, um, Bendis quite likes her, so she pops up in various <laughs> Bendis-written things. What um, if they introduced a 1940s version of Kate Bishop? And that's why we're just following Clint Barton around now, because <laughs> Kate Bishop act- actually existed back They could make her the original Hawkeye. Yeah, that would yeah. be awesome. And make him a legacy character. That would further upset Hawkeye fans. Yes, yeah, she, she could be... <laughs> She could be um, Linda Cardellini's mother, maybe. <laughs> and we see her set up the farm. <laughs> I'm on board for for any and all Hawkeye in the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. I've been completely flipped. Um, but yeah, season two of uh, Agent Carter looking pretty exciting. But yeah. we're mostly psyched for Jessica Jones at the moment, right? Yeah. I can barely contain myself. Oh, I've, I've reread all of Alias now, and um, 
I am I, I'm just like itching to watch this series. That comic is you know, the so only, good. The only downside to rereading Alias before the show, because I've been doing it as well, is that you just read the comic and you just think, oh, but the TV show's not going to live up to this. <laughs> like, you know, it, the TV show's not going to have J. Jonah Jameson in it. So no, that's, that's, that's a letdown. No Captain Marvel, no Scott Lang. But wait, wait, wait. Could, I think they I think they could reference Scott Lang, actually. Um, I think they could find a way to work. That, in, that would be quite him, amusing if they, they can get him eaten by his own ants that would be great <laughs> so I'm expecting a cameo I, I, I just feel like at some point we might get some cameo even if it's just a flashback to a, a Jessica Jones like encounter <laughs> with date. the Avengers and it's just, it just just one of them showing up oh please please have the bit where she throws up on Thor's shoes that's what we want to see <laughs> that would be incredible um, but, but to get back to the new casting, um, so we now know who Carrie Ann Moss is playing. She is playing a gender-flipped version of Jeren Hogarth, who in the comics is apparently a longtime ally of Danny Rand, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. So I think this is probably the first proper tie-in that we know about to that Iron Fist show that, that we're eventually going to get to after a second season of Daredevil and Luke Cage. Um, and probably a second season of Jessica Jones by that time as well, I would imagine. Um, but Hogarth, apparently in the comics, is a lawyer and businessman who works for Danny's father, Wendell Rand, and he is a long-serving counsel for Danny. Um, the other piece of casting news we know is that um, uh, at New York Comic Con, actor Will Travell uh, basically revealed that he is going to be playing the psycho super soldier from the Marvel Universe, Nuke who is a character that I um, I encountered on the pages of Daredevil on one occasion, and um, he seems absolutely nuts. Um, he, but I could I could imagine how he could maybe be a good villain of the week um, or kind of um, goon of a bigger villain on, on Jessica Jones. I was going to say, it's kind of surprising, because Nuke's the a sort of character of the calibre you would expect them to be saving for Captain America to fight on the big screen. I, I would think it could maybe be, and we, I mean, we don't really know if they're going to do it, but if they are going to flash back to Jessica as a hero, he could be someone who she's fighting back when she was dual. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that could be true. Something yeah. like that. I mean, I guess the reason you might not want to use Nuke on screen is because, as a character, he's a sort of critique of the Vietnam War. I think that brings us to the end of our news section for this week. Uh, We'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Matthew Vaughan's X-Men First Class. But before we dive in, let's take a listen to the original trailer for the movie. shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. The cost of freedom is always high. No one can foresee precisely what cost it will take. One path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender. Let's find out. Listen to me very carefully, my friend. Killing will not bring you peace. Peace was never an option. 
Okay, so that was the trailer for X-Men First Class. This is the 2011 movie directed by Matthew Vaughan. Um, and just to remind everyone who's thinking, what what are these guys doing jumping around with the X-Men franchise like this? <laughs> so we're doing all of the other franchises in release date order, but we're doing the X-Men movies in chronological order and we're using Wolverine as our guide for this, given that he appears in all of them. So we did X-Men Origins Wolverine last time and chronologically this is the movie that takes place next. Um, So, yeah, that is why we're doing X-Men First Class now. Guys, as far as I'm concerned, this is a movie that is... All about the kind of the origins of Professor X and Magneto and the relationship and the subsequent rivalry that forms between them. And that pretty much everything that el- everything else that takes place from the other characters, the other character relationships, the plot, all of it is in service of this relationship. Is that is that something you'd agree with or do you, do you think that there's more at play here? No, fully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely it. It, yeah. it seems to me like that. This they went okay. We're gonna do a, we're gonna do a flat. Uh, we're gonna take these characters back to when they're young. Um, Charles and Eric will be in the centre of it. Let's explore that character, and then how do we build the film around that? Um, and and, and it, it it really works because it gives the film this spoiler. Alert, I love this movie. It's my favourite X Men movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's. I was having a conversation on Twitter yesterday about the Harry Potter movies and how Prisoner of Azkaban is my favourite, even though it, like, tonally (laughs) feels separate to all of the rest of them. And this does kind of feel like the anomaly of the X-Men movies. But it's my favourite, and it has this very, very tight focus, and everything serves that focus. I was going to say, it's because this... It feels like a movie that is an X-Men movie second rather than first. Like, they had a story about two you know, friends who became philosophically opposed and they told that rather than doing a story about superheroes. No, I mean, I, I, I would completely agree that it's the best of the X-Men movies. I mean, as far as this genre goes, it's one of my favourites. Sort of, it might not be top five, but it's it's pretty close to up there. I, um, and, I mean, what you said about sort of, you know, them deciding first and foremost to build it around that relationship and those two when they were younger. It's probably worth noting the history and the background of the fact that obviously their their original plan after Last Stand was to do X Men Origins Wolverine and X Men Origins Magneto, and, and then a young X Men movie. <laughs> yeah. So then basically completely the, separate. Yeah. So and I think I would I would hazard a guess. Well, I don't know for certain that their original plan to do a young X-Men movie, by virtue of the fact that they called it First Class, mm. was probably more designed to be around the Scott and Jean team when they were younger in their earlier days. Well, there's that scene then, in X-Men Origins Wolverine, isn't there, where like yeah. Scott and a young... <laughs> is, that is scene young has to be written well? out of history now. Yeah, Storm's in got, it. There's yeah. a different version of Frost in there. There's a different version of Frost. Yeah. So I th- and then obviously at some point they decided to, to fold what they had of the Magneto script into this and so that kind of starts to fudge the timelines and you have to jump to the 60s and you know the idea of, of going oh let's do an X-Men film set in the 60s is an irresistible proposition like of all of the Marvel franchises I think X-Men is one that you could really that just suits the era and that you can go back and do mm. um, so 
you can definitely see the line of thinking through how they develop the various ideas into this one. I think the only downside is that I love all the Magneto stuff in this film so much that I want to see what a whole film of that stuff would have been like <laughs> rather than the 10 or 15 minutes that we get. I mean, for me, what I what I came away from this film thinking was I almost wish that like there's there's so much like crammed into the middle act of this film that I'm, I almost kind of wish that this was a trilogy almost that just kind of encompassed 60s X-Men that you kind of have a, mm. a first film dealing with origins and a second film looking at this first class of <laughs> mutants that we actually get sp- t- time to spend with them. And the third one ends with this big, you know, showdown set around yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis. It does, I mean, particularly... it does feel a bit like this film should have ended with the formation of the X-Men rather than had it sort of two-thirds through. Yeah, and like... I mean, not to get not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but sort of, I think I think Shaw, as he's presented in this film, is is too good a villain to have this be the only film in which he appears. Hmm. Because I like the way it sets up that he's been around for a long time and is you know one of the oldest mutants, and that he predates even Xavier and Magneto. Um, and I, I, I think he's genuinely set up as a really big threat, um, you know, and, you know, he is the source of Magneto's entire ideology. Mm. Um, and the whole point about Magneto is Magneto is the figurehead of that opposing side of, of, of ideology. So I think it is a bit of a shame that, I mean, obviously, you know, thematically, the film absolutely has to end with Magneto killing him. But yeah, if you had more time in, in more screen time in this time period you could have drawn that story out a bit longer so am i right in thinking this is this your guy both of yours favorite marvel movie as well uh, oh sorry I, favorite x-men movie as well definitely favorite x-men movie i i like x-men 2 i think a lot more I than say, i prefer does. x-men 2 i oh, do you? i know maybe i'm mixing you up with someone else <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, 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 so this for you is both maybe both slightly behind x-men 2 but it's up there I think I'd put this slightly ahead of it. I think X-Men 2 is better as an X-Men movie and a kind of comic booky X-Men movie. I think this is tighter and more enjoyable as a film in its own right. I, I would agree with that if it was about 40 minutes shorter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you see, it, I, and I think that there might be some people like listening to the podcast going, what are you idiots on about? Because like, there is a lot of people that just flat out do not like First Class. Um, as well, a movie, as an X-Men <laughs> movie. And I mean, probably as uh, in a way that any Matthew Vaughan film is uh, just hated by a group of people. And I don't think it's the same group of people each time because there are people who love Kick-Ass that hated Kingsman or that hated Layer Cake but love this. Um, but the, I, I mean, it, it would be remiss of us to say that this film doesn't have problems and at times some fairly, <laughs> fairly obvious clunking problems. Um, and, and I think you can see a lot of the joins as, as this movie is, is, is playing out. But yeah, I think as this character study of Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher, it just, it works so well for me. And I love so many of the trappings around it that it, it comes together into something pretty special. To, just to stop this being a, like a giant love-in, like one one thing that bothers me about the film is Professor Xavier's character. Because while I can buy that this is a version of Xavier, like it's not the comics version, and it's not the version from the previous X-Men movies. It sort of it doesn't line up in that way. In that, like I think McAvoy 
it's he's playing a very good character, but I'm not sure it's Professor Xavier in any recognisable way. No, but I I mean, watching this, I I didn't think that either... Like, Fassbender and McAvoy, I watched some of the special features and Matthew Vaughan just said, look, I don't don't want you to look at Patrick Stewart or Ian McKellen in any way. Read the script and do your own thing with these characters. And that's very clear that that's what both of them are doing. But having said that, watching both of them, like, it, it didn't to me seem like these characters couldn't in the space of 40 years become the other two characters yes they're not those characters now but there's there's a there's a big gap there and there's a lot of a lot of life to be lived before yeah i don't know i just i don't see the mcavoy professor xavier being like the serene Mm. sort of you know wise man professor that patrick stewart was i mean you know (laughs) it could happen it just it doesn't feel like it should whereas fastbender yeah fastbender i think he is a believable young magneto in pretty much every sense i think i think cuz i think the problem that this film has to get over and and i think it succeeds in and it's one of the things it does best is if you look at xavier and magneto you know in the kind of present day in inverted commas as much as the you know as, as good as it is having Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, and those two spark off each other brilliantly, so you you can fully believe those actors as people who were friends but who have differing ideologies um, and who've you know kind of drifted apart in that sense and, and become opponents. It's really hard. I've always found it difficult. Like the comics and the films always present us with this status quo of we were once friends and and then it all went wrong. I've always found it a little bit difficult to buy that that character and that character actually had that friendship in the first place. And I think this film succeeds so well in selling their friendship Mm. and then in showing how it falls apart. And I think the way by which it does that is to make Professor X quite a different character from the previous versions that we've seen. This Professor X, you can totally buy being friends with Magneto in the way that he is. And the um, fact that it's, it's a friendship, um, but it's a friendship born of circumstance, and it's yeah. a, it's it's never an easy friendship. It's all it's mm. always the two kind of pushing and pulling at each other the whole time. Um, yeah, and it's like it's it's Professor X kind of seeing this desperate guy who he sees as potentially being a bit like him if he'd gone the wrong way. And he's just always desperately trying to pull him back. And it's like, you know, who hasn't had a friendship where you've got a friend who is a little bit off the rails or, you know, can be a little bit difficult. And, you know, but you, but you sort of, you know, make it your thing to sort of really try and, you know, sort of pull them back around sort of thing. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's a, quite, it's, it's a quite relatable type of friendship. And even because, you know, because Charles himself isn't perfect and in, and in many ways is, you know, hmm. kind of a little bit misguided, but... Um, you know, he sort of gets it in his head that it's become his life's work to try and save this guy. You know, it's right from that scene. I, I really like that scene where Eric's chasing down the submarine and and Charles stops him. Um, and then the I think that, along with the scene where he trains him to turn around the satellite dish, are those two key scenes in terms of building their friendship and i just really really like both of those scenes well should we jump back into the the film and kind of track how that does develop chronologically because we're, we're introduced to them both initially as children um mm. i mean notably this film begins and ends with magneto um i think this probably in terms of yes the the, the character 
relationship, I think, is the key to the movie. But the character who really has a strong, pronounced arc throughout the movie is Eric rather than Mm. Charles. Um, And the movie opens with Eric kind of replaying that scene we saw, well, almost directly replaying the scene we saw at the start of the first X-Men movie with um, Eric and his family back in a concentration camp, except this carries it on and we see um, Bill Milner playing young Magneto um, as he encounters Kevin Bacon's Sebastian Shaw for the first time. And then the flip of that is we have a young Charles Xavier living his kind of privileged British life in a in a mansion um, where he meets a young mystique raven for the first time um, <laughs> now <laughs> now I, I kind of like the way that they play off against each other and I kind of like the way that the individual scenes of each of the two characters play off against each other in in this first act before they meet but the the professor X one is I think really jarring in terms of the X-Men chronology, because as much as you say, like, I, you know, it it might be difficult seeing Professor James McAvoy's Professor X becoming Patrick Stewart's, seeing Mystique and Professor X having this friendship and this relationship from a young age is something that completely doesn't fit with the X-Men movies as we've seen them, right? (laughs) No, basically it's Fox's policy of just torpedoing continuity if they have a story. (laughs) Well, well, if, they have an, if they have an actor they want to highlight <laughs> I, 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 don't I don't mind don't... it at all in this movie I think yeah. as strange as that relationship is it works to see how Mystique is kind of the, the character who is being pulled in two directions mm. between, I mean... between the two, two ideologies I mean I'm on board with it as much as he can be but every fibre of my comics loving being <laughs> screams at that entire relationship I do I, 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 part of the reason I think it's worthwhile is that it's I, I, again. I really like the the relationship between um, Xavier and Mystique in this because I really like that McAvoy and Jennifer Lawrence managed to have a chemistry that isn't a romantic chemistry, and it's like that. Actually, that slightly awkward, you know, like fraternal relationship. I think I think comes across really well, um, and it I, works I, really well in contrast to the kind of seductive and yeah. sexual magneto mystique relationship exactly is there. it's like there's, there's a couple of scenes there's there's the one where um she's like oh would you date me would you date me if i look like this and he's just kind of distractedly like, oh yes of course anybody would be looking to have you kind of thing and then the one later on when she comes into the kitchen and she's just in her blue self with no clothes on and his awkwardness is is really yeah. really yeah, well yeah, played yeah. i really like that <laughs> um but in that first scene, it's a little bit awkward just because the quality of acting in that scene is not particularly great. And also, yeah. the film never really explains why they're living in America in a big mansion. And um, you'll never have to again. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the problem is that that scene... I mean, it may be in isolation, that scene would be okay. And while thematically it stands up opposite the Eric scene well... Um, just in terms of um, execution, because by God, that scene with because that, that that opening scene with with Eric and Sebastian Shaw is just that's what just completely immediately sells me on the film. That scene is so confident and just you know absolutely kind of sets the film stall out as this is what we're going to do. Yeah, 
As soon as as soon as Sebastian Shaw says "chocolada," yeah. I'm like, "Yes, I'm in. I'm in. This guy's a dick." Yeah, and it's, it's only, it, I think it's really notable that not only in that scene but in the rest of the film that um, scenes with people not speaking English are always subtitled. And it's like that. That's not even really a given for particularly a film. You know, kind of. It always seems that films set with the Nazis will just have them speaking English in a German accent. So to actually confidently say right at the start of the film and have a scene that lasts a good few minutes where they're all speaking in German and it's subtitled, um, and just you know the tension of that scene with the counter. And you're like, you know, I mean, you know that it's in the Holocaust and the Holocaust is horrific, and you know that it's Magneto and that he's the villain. But even so, this is in the opening few minutes of a you know big summary blockbuster comic book movie, and you've got the villain shooting the guy's mother through the head. It's just mm. like, you know, and it, but it's I, a real statement of intent, I think. And I, I really love that, that, you know, you say it's Magneto and we know, know he's the villain. And the film really plays with that with Charles Nerick, I think. Because I think if you came into X-Men First Class without having seen any other X-Men, I think you'd watch this first act and kind of go, the, the villain and the hero and the guy who's maybe going to turn evil in the end, you, you'd almost be tempted to think that <laughs> Magneto is the guy on the redemptive arc and that Xavier yeah. is... Because they really play up in the first act. You could charitably say that Charles Xavier is a bit of a cad. He's a bit of a, a plummy university town mm. boy who's going around and kind of drinking and uh, womanizing. Invading, and, invading people's minds. Yes. It, well, the invading people's mind thing is very key because he's a, he's a dick in this. It, for, for long stretches, Charles is a dick who is not very nice to the people around him. He's not very, um, like... He's not worried about other people's feelings. The fact that Mystique is put as this person who is in between Charles Xavier and Magneto and is kind of being pulled both ways. Honestly, the way she's treated in this film, it makes complete sense that she would go to Magneto. And I think what we're almost watching is Charles Xavier's redemptive arc from being a dick to... A, a guy who understands all wheelchair. the mistakes he's making and, and has to change. Yes, the ideologies are kind of in place that Charles has the more positive ideology and, and Eric has the negative one. But you're watching one guy kind of like wanting to take vengeance for this harrowing, harrowing thing that happened in his childhood. While, while this other guy is drinking and just going into whoever's mind he fancies back in back in a university bar. This is the thing, I mean, cause, you know, for most of this film, you know, the, the very idea of, oh, you know, there are mutants and there are humans and, and, you know, the mutants need to be the superior. None of that is on Eric's <laughs> mind at all. Eric mm. has one singular goal, which is to hunt down and destroy the bloke who killed his mother in front of him. And to be honest, can you actually begrudge him that? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> actually, what Eric wants to do and what he succeeds in doing over the entirety of this film, you're pretty much behind him all the way. He wants to go around and kill Nazis, basically. So, you know, good on him. And what Matthew Vaughan is very, very, very explicitly doing, and this time I don't feel bad for raising this comparison because it's definitely there, Michael's fast bonding around Europe. He, Michael Fassbender is just <laughs> flat out being James Bond here. He's dressing like James Bond. The sets are designed to look like Ken Adams' Bond sets. The score is designed to sound a little bit like John Barry's old Bond scores. And 
Fassbender is playing James Bond in this opening act as he goes around Europe. James uh, Bond would never drink German beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, again, that, that scene in the... I mean, the bank scene is good, but the scene in the bar in Argentina is just... It, it, that is just it's such a cliche thing to say about this film about you know oh, I wish you had a whole film of him going around hunting Nazis but it's true <laughs> that scene is so good that you just want more of it he's so just so good. calm the, and cool the costume and design just, with the turtlenecks yeah. and the slicked back hair and the briefcases <laughs> and the I mean you, you flipping from the, you know the European expanses to Argentina and that that little I mean, that, that bar is so exquisitely designed. Yeah. I mean, this film was made on a very tight schedule and it seemed like a lot of stuff was done on the fly. And I think we'll probably get some stuff where, you know, like either the CG is very clunky or some of the character design doesn't quite work. Um, but... Are you talking about Beast? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But yeah, but yeah, this this stuff works fantastically well and... Yeah, you, you get that James Bond vibe entirely on purpose, and yeah, that, that's always going to play play well to me. We have this back and forth between these two characters. Like I say, I think you're watching, and yes, there is that there is that constant edge to Magneto where he's pulling the fillings out of that guy in the bank, and he gets the he gets the information, and then still pulls the filling. Like he, he he's you you see that there is that edge to Magneto. But there is there is that kind of feeling in the back of your mind that like oh but when he meets Charles he is may- maybe he's gonna learn you know to to not do that so much whereas if you were coming to this film cold you would absolutely see it that way but like because because those characters are so sort of ingrained in my mind like I just I never considered the possibility of it I, I, I don't... it reminds me of Chronicle in a way in that mm. like you're you're looking at this guy and thinking oh maybe he's the hero and he's not. I wonder though, is you know, is is the film going to make any kind of assumption that anyone will be coming to it not knowing who these characters are? Oh no, it's not, and that's what that's but that's what that's why I think the film is playing with it in a really interesting way because it's kind of presenting it as <clears throat> you are rooting for Magneto and you're watching Xavier be a dick, and you are you are kind of able to temper both of those things by going, I know who these characters are, and so I can recognise that while Magneto looks awesome being James Bond, I can't fully root for what he's doing because I, I kind of know the emotions and the and deep down the, the ideology that drives it. And at the same time as McAvoy is being just, I mean, horribly intrusive with his mind control the whole way through. And I, again, I think it's intentional, the fact that he just jumps into people's minds willy-nilly. I think Matthew Vaughn wants us to think... Ah, that's that's not okay. That's that is a, a huge violation of anyone he does that to. But we know in the back of our minds that is Professor X, and he is our hero, and he's going to learn that this that this behavior is not acceptable as he as he goes through the movie. <laughs> Although does he? Because you know Professor X is a dick, and pretty much always is. So. <laughs> I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he does learn by the end of the movie. Bearing in mind one of the last things he does in the movie, but, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get <laughs> we'll to that and debate that. Later. But that is going to involve Moira Mattager, and we'll we'll discuss her now because uh, she is our kind of she is our non our main non mutant character in this film, and we meet her, uh, a CIA agent who is following a military guy into a club, 
Um, and it becomes clear that this is the Hellfire Club, who, guys, uh, this is the point, the first point where I'm going to ask you to do some serious comics explanation. Who are the Hellfire Club on the page? I think They're actually based on a real club called the Hellfire Club. Mm. And essentially they're sort of wealthy businessmen and artists or whatever who come together to dictate the course of society, I guess. Uh, it's a bit and, like the Illuminati. Yeah, and specifically, yeah, except real. Uh, but specifically, the inner circle of the Hellfire Club has become a, a club for mutants. Hmm. And Sebastian Shaw is kind of the most prominent member. Like, in the comics, there's a really good sort of mythology to the inner circle where they have the, the Black King and the White King, White King and the Black Queen and the White Queen. And they kind of, you know, didn't really do much with that in the film. Because Emma, Emma Frost is the White Queen, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's when she was introduced. She was she was the White Queen. Sure, was the Black King, and there was the the White King and the Black Queen as well. Okay, but so those two characters are pretty much the the keys <laughs> to that club. Is is there anyone that's absent? Because am I right in thinking that characters like um, Azazel and Angel, uh, and I forget even what the guy who creates hurricanes is called, um, but are they are, are they? They're just kind of plug-and-play mutants that fit well yeah. and have powers that are going to look cool in this movie, right? Yeah, I mean, they're not really... They're not doing the comics. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fire Club, in any sense. Riptide. Sorry, you reckon? Yeah, Ripside. Yeah, of course. <laughs> mm. um, Azazel is actually Azazel and, and Angel both come from um, early to mid two thousands X Men comics. Unless had Azazel shown up before then, James? <laughs> no, no. Um, Azazel is uh, Nightcrawler's father mm. and a demon, and from a storyline that is generally acknowledged to be the worst X Men comic ever written. <laughs> Um, but works, so pr- works pretty well in this movie, right? I mean, this is great. As just well, a, as, a, as a henchman, as a as a bond I, henchman. I would never be unhappy to see Jason Fleming in a Matthew Vaughan film. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> that's always a, a good, uh, reliable 
Um, and Angel is actually obviously not isn't the first character to be called Angel because you know about the original Angel Warren Worthington, mm-hmm. who is one of the sixties team. But Angel is from Grant Morrison's run. Um, but you know, character wise, is like like look wise, they get a, they get a fairly dead on. Although you know, they sort of do glamour up a bit. Um, but character wise, is quite different in this yeah. from how she is in, in Grant Morrison's New X Men. But yeah, they have essentially. I think it's a case of what random characters can we pluck out where using them won't have too much of an effect on anything and that haven't already been used by the previous films. And um, I think we'll probably be able to just say, listen to that seg- segment that Seb just did right there and just plug and play that for the actual first class themselves as well. <laughs> All of those young mutants who are recruited are just, they're just there because mostly we haven't seen them on screen before and they have powers that are going to look quite cool in the fight that they've got designed at the end. Well, it's basically, I mean, you know, you've got Havoc, you've got Havoc because you can't do Cyclops because the time period is wrong for Cyclops. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, if this film had originally been the, the, you know, um, the 2000 film lineup as youngsters, he would have been Cyclops and all of the worry about controlling his powers and all of that. Like he literally just would have been Cyclops. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've got Banshee who works because Banshee was kind of one of the original seventies X-Men. But again, it is just a case of who can we pick up and use? Who's potentially vaguely interesting. You've got beast who you can do because the chronology of the films already has him being older. So you can fit him in. Um, and you've got, I can't even remember who else is on the team. Um, Darwin Darwin, yes, well we'll get to Darwin won't <laughs> yeah. we um, um, but I mean actually that, I mean, that scene's going to be, be a good comparison point to this scene because there is a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot I really like about this scene where Moira kind of goes undercover and, and finds the secret, you know the secret room in the Hellfire Club and observes some of this conversation and the set that they have that, that the Hellfire Club's meeting in room in is this brilliant, like like I said, old Ken Adams style Bond villainous lair with this sunken um, some sunken sofa and this fireplace. It's so sixties and it's so Bond and it's so it's so brilliantly designed. At the same time, we have our most prominent like. Um, female character in Moira immediately stripping down to her underwear to infiltrate this lair who just she just happens to be wearing this like extravagant Victoria's Secret kind of like suspenders and fancy lingerie get up under her work clothes in fairness I think she planned it didn't she did she no, no, I, I, I've always taken that scene as she sees them going in and she goes oh I've got an idea yeah yeah, but, but, and well, so it just reg- happens. I give, that she I give Matthew right kind of underwear. Regardless, <laughs> we're, we're stripping Moira, we're stripping Moira down to her underwear straight away to go in and observe our main female villain Emma Frost, who is wearing her underwear the whole way through the film. And then you know you're thinking about other main characters. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> spends most of her time. I mean, yes, this is this is a, like a some of this comes back to the characters they're based on but Jennifer Lawrence spends half of the film blue and naked um, and then even like a character Zoe Kravitz's angel is introduced as a dancer in a club in skimpy clothing it's a yeah. Matthew Vaughan movie and it has these kind of problems but at the same time I mean like I think there's always something in his films that you can kind of go oh, I'm not quite sure about that I really that makes me feel pretty uncomfortable but at the same time, I really enjoyed the scene. <laughs> and to, to be fair, I mean, you, you mentioned Emma Frost, and actually, you know, of of any character in 
in X-Men comics or in comics in general, if you're going to get away with doing that with one character, it is mm. going to be her because that's, you know, it's as much a part of her personality as anything else. So. Having said that, is she, a, is, she a, <laughs> is she too good a character to have messed up this badly here? Because for for me, oh, she is the definitely. one. She is the one mutant character that I come out of and go. I never need to see her on screen ever again. <laughs> and then I hear that she's actually got some like really rich and storied history on the page. Yeah, I, I mean, it's fair to say Emma Frost is probably one of the franchise's best characters. Yeah, but, like maybe maybe wasn't that case in the nineties when she was kind of red to villain. But the development of her over the last twenty years has been fantastic. And to I think January Jones is borderline awful here. Yeah, with all respect to January Jones, like her performance in this is very January Jones. To be fair, it's it, I was going to say it's not the, it's not the first thing that January Jones has been in where she's kind of the weak link acting wise. So we we'll we'll kind of move past that point to get to get towards the point where we are bringing Xavier and Magneto together. And this all playing out in the backdrop of 60s politics and the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, which um is in terms of taking history and adding a superhero movie villainous plot to watching Sebastian Shaw just go can I orchestrate <laughs> mutually assured destruction and then just the mutants will survive because when we're, we're mutated already we we can get past this survival of the fittest will play out here it's um it's a pretty fun <laughs> way of merging history and uh, and silly comics ideas there's things that I like and don't like about it. I, I really I like it as a backdrop, and I think having the actual the specific moment of the Cuban Missile Crisis as the um, focal point for the climactic scene of the film, I think works really well. And the problem the fact that, that I, it's about these two clashing ideologies essentially, yeah. these two posturing sides finally coming to blows and then separating and going their going their own ways. Yeah, the problem that I have with it is that what the film basically says is the Cuban Missile Crisis was orchestrated by Sebastian Shaw. (laughs) And it's like, well, firstly, it wasn't, because it's an actual thing that happened in reality. And secondly, what you're basically doing is absolving humanity of responsibility for nearly destroying itself. (laughs) And I think the thing is, I think you can still have most of the basic plot of this film being Sebastian Shaw has observed that this is going to happen (laughs) and is going to take advantage of it and is going to nudge it into actually being a war because he can see that the two superpowers are, are getting to this position. The fact that he's actually responsible for pushing them to that position, I think is unnecessary because this is a moment in history that actually happened and it's like you're kind of saying oh well you know it wasn't really their fault it was it was the the bad mutant making them do it and it's like well no it wasn't it was their fault you know it's no rubber-faced reagan though is it well (laughs) (laughs) um but then but but, okay so but then we do get to we do get to bring magneto and xavier together and God, I love this relationship so much. And like as much as I've always enjoyed watching Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart together playing these roles, I think this is the version I prefer. Michael Fassbender is so, so perfect. He, and he, I mean, he's an incredible actor. Flaw. He has one notable flaw in this film. It's, it's his accent. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't know what accent he's doing over the course of the film, <laughs> which is fine because he's a he's a German. He's having to speak English all the time. He's been glow popping. Okay, but where does he get the Irish from? It's just that's the, that's the center point of all the areas that he's been in. It's like Russell Crowe in Robin Hood. Like he's been all over Europe, and his accent has settled somewhere around Dublin. 
It's just baffling that that an actor who is so good and who so otherwise perfectly inhabits the character just randomly turns Irish at at random intervals. And it's not like it's his accent for the entire film either. That's the thing. (laughs) It's the fact that it just randomly, particularly in the scene on the beach, all of a sudden he's he's talking like Bono. (laughs) But other than that, he's amazing, right? Yeah. And, And McAvoy absolutely kills it as well and the two of them together i mean this is probably the relationships <laughs> relationship that i first noticed fans shipping um on on the internet the 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 uh Cherik thing like um this is the first one i, I think yeah, it's the first one that i probably sheltered noticed life up to that point wow i mean there's there's, there's a I lot of them the first time i got on the internet and it was like kirk spock kirk spock i was like what what am i reading <laughs> That was ninety-five. I mean, well, Kurt Spock makes sense, but that it's it's a, it's a quite similar relationship. You see, the two they are like, especially in the montage where they go around picking up mutants together. There is this this kind of like. I think the film does kind of play out like a relationship. Like they they kind of have this tortured meet cute around a submarine, and then they get <laughs> to know each other and they feel each other out, and then they have this really happy period in the middle where they're just kind of like bouncing off each other and actually having fun and smiling and laughing. And there's there's <laughs> there's a real light hearted segment in the middle of this film before Shaw turns up and and kills mutants. Uh, and drops Oliver Platt out of the sky. Poor Oliver Platt. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, d- I don't see the need to kill off that character. That was, no, it's, although it, it's, it's not the worst piece of character killing off in that scene. So let's not get too upset about it. Um, um, but yeah, do you, do, you, do you guys like those two when they're actually playing? Because I, I think yeah, ideologically I mean, it all works out. You know, the the idea of putting this script together and building this film around that relationship. But when you actually put them together, I think it's just it, it's so so strong. Those well, two I, actors I, are great. I was talking earlier about how, you know, um, for, I can see from, from Charles's perspective how the friendship works and how, as I say, you know, he kind of finds this person who he, who he kind of feels a kinship with and who he wants to kind of rescue. And that sequence is, I think, really crucial for showing why Eric becomes friends with Charles, which is that if you think about Eric's life up to that point, he has basically not had any joy or friendship in his life because he's been in the internment camps and then he has basically spent his life hunting down the evil bastards who did this kind of thing. You know, you, you don't get the sense that at any point in his adult life, he's had a friend mm. and gone and had fun. And so Charles is the first person with whom he does that. And um, so, yeah, you can completely see why, you know, he develops this closeness with him as he a result. Have, he must have had some fun with Quicksilver's mother at some point. <laughs> <laughs> That's, no uh, way, that would happen after this chronologically. Yeah, I think, no. it, I think it would was be he, after this. He was in prison. No, not the whole time. He, he's got oh, he's got like two years, hasn't he? Ah, X Men no, in your timeline. No, no, this, no, this is Cuban Missile Crisis. So, it's oh 62. yeah, we've we've just put more thought into this than anyone at Fox. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, in that montage scene, you get. Um, <laughs> it's so gratuitous, but it it did get. I don't know if it got a round of applause in the cinema when I saw it, but it definitely brought the house down. The the uh, single this movie uses Wolverine better than any other X Men movie. Is, yeah, is that character distilled right? <laughs> and, they, and they get their one f bomb for this rating, and they use it perfectly. It, I, I think it is genuinely the the most perfect use of not the <sighs> most perfect use of swearing in any film because in films that are allowed to do it a lot. But the most yeah the most perfect. Scene 
single use of a swear word <laughs> in a film. And it's and it's and it's just the deadpan reaction from from Fassbender and McAvoy where they're just like, yeah. right, okay, yep, well, let's leave. <laughs> this sequence with the with the jumping around, I mean, some of it works better, but um, then some of the little scenes work better than others. But Vaughn does good montage, and there's this montage, and there's a training montage in the mansion later. Which, like I say, I think you could, I think you could spend a whole lot of time on doing this. On like, like I said, you could make a movie out of going around and recruiting each mutant, and then mm. watching them form a team <laughs> together, and and all that stuff. And ultimately, the film isn't really concerned with that, so it's fine that this is how it does it. But it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really does have some. It does have a lot of fun with it. It does feel like that should have been its own film. Like I guess they were, you know, they were trying to cram everything in there, and they wanted to call it an X Men film, so they had to have some X Men. <laughs> but it does. It feels to me like, like I was saying, it could be a shorter film, and that's the stuff they could lose is the the kind of X Men in training, especially because when it gets to the final act, they're not really needed. Like, they, they all have a token, let's show off our powers, but they don't, you know, for the most part, they're standing around on a beach while the action happens elsewhere. And and I would say, other than Mystique and Beast, most of them don't really tie back to that relationship between Charles and Eric either. I mean, yeah. I think the, the Mystique-Beast relationship is supposed to be <coughs> the kind of the, the counterpoint or the, like, it's the same relationship playing out, but basically on a much smaller scale between those two. Yeah, and and that's what I mean about those two kind of having this romance and feeling each other out. It there, there is there is some scent of romance between Charles and Eric. Uh, you can see you can see the kind of the same dynamics playing out in those in those two relationships. But yeah, for the most part, the rest of those mutants really don't get much to do, and that becomes clear when we see them. They're gathered together, and it's like, oh, what are we going to do with them? We'll sit them in a room at Langley. <laughs> <laughs> and they sit in a room and they do that horrible comic book movie thing which is hey why don't we call you Banshee and hey and you know, I think I'll be Mystique <laughs> do you know what's annoying about that this is one of the rare examples of uh, a superhero movie where there is a legitimate in story reason for them to be given code names by someone else yeah you know it could that you could literally just have it that they are that all of their files are given like reference code names by the CIA and mm. so that's why they end up using them but instead having them sit around and and invent these names for themselves it's just stupid <laughs> you know and and, and oh. let's be honest it's it's a scene that doesn't really play very well entirely. The the whole those sitting in a room and then how they get out of that room. It's yeah. it's 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 a weak point for the movie. And um, I mean, Seb, do you just want do you just want to lay into what is so <laughs> so horrible about this scene, despite the <sighs> fact that Oliver Platt is thrown on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, like at that point, I think genuinely um I, I think it's really clever the method of having Azazel murder all these people mm. by teleporting them into the sky and dropping them. It's really horrifying and it comes along really suddenly and it's really well played mm. and it what it really does well is shift the tone of what's happening because it's the first time they've come face to face with Shaw and and things are about to get horrible. So that's great. What's not so great is immediately killing off the one black guy and then immediately having the one black girl turn evil. It's just... It's so, like... You can't believe someone in that room didn't go, (laughs) Oh, wait, hang on a minute. This... 
No, no. We we've. Uh... <laughs> it does. It does sort of feel like there should be someone on a movie whose job it is to go. Hey, does the black guy die first in this film? Yeah, and it's mm. like, well, how can you not notice? I, I mean, like of those characters, I, I I kind of understand why Angel would be the one seduced by the others, and yeah. I kind of I, and and actually the the method of Darwin's death, I think, is really unsettling. I mean, Matthew Vaughan has a way of doing really, really unpleasant deaths in his movies. He's done it in Kick-Ass <laughs> and in Kingsman and in Layer Cake and in this. There's normally one one that I see and just go, oh god, no. I, that, like, I, I really had a problem watching that. And I think the Darwin death is it's harrowing and the effect is one of the best effects in the movie. You can't get past the facts that mm. this is the one black guy dying. Yeah. And also, he, I thought he was one of the coolest characters. Like, of those characters there, kill the screamy guy or kill the guy that's Cyclops but not as good. <laughs> like, can we keep this guy who can adapt to any situation? That would I be mean, awesome. I, I mean, this is sort of a thing where the comics are dictating who, who dies, though, because, like, in the comics, Darwin has always been a kind of... He was a continuity insert character for a start, and then he, you know, he got shuffled off to a side book and barely appears these days. But I mean, so half like, of they... these characters get butchered in between this and Days of Future Past anyway, so who oh, yeah, a shit, but... right? Yeah, but like, you, they can't kill off Banshee and Havoc because they're fairly major characters mm. in terms of the X-Men canon, you know, and they've got some built-in merchandising capability, if not fan base. I think this Whereas is the, Darwin cause, doesn't so, and and like you, you, what you could argue is, well, why don't you have Darwin be a white guy and one of the other characters be black? And I think, the, I think, I guess they kind of work themselves into a corner with which characters they chose because you've got Banshee, who's pr- who pretty much the only character facet he has is that he's Irish, yeah. and you've got Havoc, who everyone knows is Scott Summers' brother. Yeah, but and it's then just could be stand Mystique you can't mess with because we see them yeah. already. So I, I, it's, but it's just could you so so I understand the thing of we you know um, those characters have to be white and so he's the only one that we were able to cast as a black actor and then there are reasons why he's the only one that they could kill off but they there still had to have been a way around it because it's just and I, I, I'm aware that sometimes we might come off as like overly politically sensitive or whatever on this but it's the fact that in movies this is such a trope and such uh it's really something that anyone intelligent making a movie should be aware of I mean, it's definitely not our first comic book movie we've discussed where the black guy has died first <laughs> yeah no. um so it's just there, there had to have been another way around it even if it was something as straightforward as have another mutant on the team who is who is black so that you at least have a vaguely ethnically diverse group um and just kill off one of the white guys I mean, yeah. I don't see why they couldn't have just killed off Havoc at that point or something. It's, I know, I know what James is saying about you know the sort of the the ready-made potential, but there's but there's no personality to Havoc in this, and <laughs> or um, indeed in the comics. Well, yeah, um, and and then it's the fact that it's followed up by Angel being the one who turns to the other side, and it's just. Yeah, I, w- I wonder whether it is one of those things that is a you know a victim of this film being made on the fly, but that by the time that people maybe on the film realised that this was this was what was taking shape, they went, oh, but there's there's no time there's no to, fix to fix it, it. so we yeah. ju- so so we just go with it. I mean, I presume I that's also it's... what happened with Emma Frost's diamond design with her weird eyes. That, <laughs> yeah. that, that does not look good. Um, I, I wonder if it's partly as well the fact that it's written and directed by two english people and i just i just 
not sure if the sensitivity is is quite there as much. But Kinberg's producing, and um, yeah. Brian Singer's producing, and Lauren Shuler Donner's producing. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't think there's an excuse for it. Basically, I, I mean, it's it, it's. But I mean, it if you're going to be charitable, it it's oversight rather than deliberate. Yes. you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't believe that there is a we have to kill the black character and make the black oh, character. No, 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 that, no. That's not what's at play here. It's just it's it's tone deafness and just mm. yeah, um, complete oversight that somebody should have caught at a much earlier stage. Yeah. Moving on from that, we get to the we get to the ex mansion kind of for the first proper time where we where I guess this is kind of like the idea of setting up the school for the first time and training these mutants to be fight ready. Um, and again, it's a, it's a really fun zippy montage that we get some really great uh, Charles and Eric moments in the middle of, and it's all kind of the the mystique being pulled one way or the other is playing out in there. I mean, the mystique in bed with. Fastbender walking through. I mean, like more Bond all over again, and <laughs> sleazy Bond treating a woman kind of like a piece of meat, but also like having this just such such as like a seductive ideology that that when he's talking to Mystique, I think he's absolutely right with what he's saying to her. He's like, you're like, yes, like in this side of things. I'm with Eric, except I know how this ideology extrapolates, and I think I'm with Charles. It's a really, it's a really, really great balance that this plays. And when and when Beast comes to Mystique with the serum, and you're like, "Yeah, don't take it, Mystique. Fuck that, fuck that noise. Like, you listen to Magneto. It's, it's, yeah. I, I really, I really like the, I really like the balance that the film pulls off there. And and the fact that it's all playing out to this training sequence, which again is loads of fun, like. Banshee falling out of a window is fun and Havoc, as much as he's a bit of a shit character, seeing him kind of flinging his energy around and that, that design of that kind of like bunker with all of the fire going around it is cool and Beast racing I mean, it is, Xavier around the mansion. It's the part of the film that probably has the most kind of comedy in it, isn't it? Like it's the... I know the other montage is quite light as well, but in between the... In between those montages, there's not a great amount of laughs to be had. And then they kind of really lighten the tone for them. That just reminds me, actually, I watched the deleted scenes, and there is a deleted scene of when they recruit Angel for the first time. Um, In that scene, Magneto kind of demonstrates his power to her by, you know, lifting up the the light bulb, the the lampshade on the table. Uh Uh, There is a deleted scene where Xavier demonstrates his power by making Angel see Magneto in a wig and a dress as a woman. <laughs> and um, I think it was quite never has a scene go... been more wisely deleted than that. <laughs> but it's because they go, oh, you know, we'll, we'll show you ours if you show us yours. But then they, it doesn't show Charles's. That, that, that did strike me in that's, that scene. That's why. Uh, that's watch on the deleted yeah, scenes. You would not be able to take Magneto seriously in the rest of the movie if you'd have, <laughs> if you'd have seen it. Um, there's also a great moment in the... Um, additional features where uh, Michael Fassbender makes himself laugh when he talks about having a having been given a quite impressive helmet for the movie (laughs) (laughs) it's just the childishness of it that really made me giggle (laughs) but yeah Seb are you a a fan of the the mansion the training montage 
I mean, it feels it. Yeah, it does feel like fun. it kind I, I of do like... like Banshee falling out the window. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the you know the uh, the stuff with Beast is fun. And it, it but it, it for me, what really makes that work is the the Charles and Eric stuff again, and the sort of uh, ignoring the fact that when when Eric's pulling his straining facial expression, he looks rather like he's doing something else. Um, it, it, it's you know it's it's a really nice pivotal no pun intended moment in there <laughs> pivotal because the thing pivots and rotates around yeah um, pivotal moment in in their relationship and you know because because that's the point at which you were, if you knew nothing about these characters that's the moment where you would be like this is it this is the end of Magneto's redemptive arc and he has become a hero yeah. you know <laughs> um, yeah but as sadly, opposed to a much worse villain. Yeah. yeah. Um, something terrible, something really, really terrible does happen in, in that sequence, and that is Beast's transformation. Um, yeah. Apparently, Matthew Vaughan really wasn't a fan of the Kelsey Grammer Beast design, which I really like, actually, um, and wanted to make Beast look more feral. I mean, the the version of Beast in... Was it X... Three. Last Stand. Three, yeah, yeah, the Last Stand. Um, and uh, Days of Future Past. Yeah, like that version is kind of it. Just looks like Kelsey Grammer with a mane, and it, you know, <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. It's not bad, but it's not the definitive version of Beast. Whereas with in First Class, they tried to go with the kind of lion version of the character that was popular at the time. I don't mind it as a design. It, it, the execution is poor. There's a moment. It's weird because there are bits when he's talking and it's fine, and there are other bits where he's talking and it's really not. And the the moment when he says, "Are you sure you can fly this thing?" and he goes, "I designed it." It doesn't even sound like Nicholas Holt's voice, no. and it certainly doesn't look like it's coming out of his mouth at that moment in time. It's like, did they just get someone else in to do the ADR afterwards? Because it's yeah. and it bears bizarre. mentioning because we we've spoken a lot about. Um, McAvoy and Fassbender, but like Nicholas Holt is good in this movie, and I like I mean, a lot in this. The yeah. casting department did one hell of a job because Nick Holt is, uh, I think, a great young actor, and Jennifer Lawrence at this point, I mean, I'm sure she's regretting signing this contract by now, but <laughs> I think, think she pretty much just done Winter's Bone at this point, and yeah, fair play to a big movie like this saying oh, hey, that girl really has something, let's put her in this movie and make her a pretty sizable part of it. Um, I mean, it's it's worth remembering, that's why, that's what Fox did with the first X-Men film, wasn't it? Like, you got in a bunch of sort of young up-and-coming actors and by the end of the franchise they were massive stars. Yeah, yeah. like, you know, Hugh Jackman wasn't massive when they signed him on for X-Men. Yeah, Halle Berry, I mean, I, mean, I mean, Halle Berry's role got increased and increased because she became a bigger star as it went on and won an Oscar. Mm. Yeah. But you can you you can see with Jennifer Lawrence in this actually you I, like because she is one of those actors who when it's like in in American Hustle which she's not actually in that much and even in a film that's got as many good actors in it as American Hustle she is somebody who just really sparks up a film when she's in it and like actually like as written and as on screen Mystique isn't a huge part of this I mean she's relatively significant but I think she comes across as more significant. Because Jennifer Lawrence makes her that way, mm. you know. And I really like the cameo from Rebecca Romaine. I think that's a really yeah, that's a, that is a nice sort of cute, uh, cute little touch. insert there. For the, for the... <laughs> but it, but yeah, that that line about you know because I <laughs> she think was everyone just glad would... of the work. <laughs> but everyone would be sitting there thinking, well, hang on, but Magneto's an old man and she's Rebecca Romaine at that point. So how was that? And so just chucking in that line of oh yeah, you your age really mm. slowly. Yeah. Um, 
let's let's move on to the final set the final kind of showdown in the movie the which plays out in the background of the cuban missile crisis which i think we kind of discussed and we don't really need to talk about the rest of the mutants and how they play into this do we because yeah they have some fun action that distracts in the kind of like scenes where we want to cut away from charles and eric for a second but can we talk about the fact that it's got michael ironside in it though oh, God, yes <laughs> michael ironside always happy about michael ironside what did he get cast in recently that we were excited about no, he's Captain. Yeah, Captain Cold's father. Oh no! Oh yeah! Oh no. yeah! No, that is good. Yeah, I, I remember being excited by that. Yes. Because no, because yeah, because it was they've managed to find someone even hammier than um, oh, I forgot his name. Went, Went Miller. Miller. Yeah. Um, to play <laughs> Went with Miller's father. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, the, the core of this, the core of this showdown is Fassbender making his way onto the submarine and having this final showdown with Shaw. And you kind of see his powers finally manifest into something strong, and you finally see him rebel against Xavier. And the scene where he is, where he's got Shaw banged to rights, and you know, I mean, crucially as well, McAvoy doesn't unfreeze Shaw. He could. Well, no, but he realizes that if he unfreezes Shaw. Um, he basically makes a decision to... He has to make the decision to allow Shaw to die because the alternative is that Shaw will go ahead with his plan and will unleash all of the... Well, and, and also that Shaw, <laughs> if he unfreezes him, will kill Magneto. Yeah, it's like, it's the only chance to stop him. So he know. I, I mean, I do find it really striking that he could stop hmm. Eric from killing Shaw by unfreezing Shaw, but yeah, he knows that, you know, he's taken this one opportunity. But it's, it's, this, it's, it's the, the fantastic double play between... You having Michael Fassbender stood there with Kevin Bacon, who is also fantastic. He's a, he's great, hammy villain. Oh, he in has this. so much fun in that yeah. film. So much fun. <laughs> but him standing in front of Shaw and going, "Hey, look, I agree with you. I agree with every <laughs> single word you say. Let's wipe out these human fuckers and like mutant nation. Fuck yeah! But you, <laughs> me, and you have beef, and I'm yeah. going to kill you. And that that double play, that interplay of having that happen while Xavier is in Shaw's mind and then having the method of dispatch being the coin, which is which is great, and that's foreshadowed the whole way through the movie that that coin is going through <laughs> Kevin Bacon's forehead by the end. But that coin going through Kevin Bacon's head and you cut back to James McAvoy and you see how much pain he's in because that's effectively happening to him as well. And the yeah, camera he's basically tracks feeling back in his head. Die. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a great metaphor for kind of like, you know, this this relationship being burned once and for all of Fassbender literally forcing his way through, you know, it, uh, Professor X's mind and going, no, I'm done with you. To an extent, but I think it's still, because I think, I mean, what you say about the sort of, the way he is with Shaw and the way he is with Shaw is basically, I agree with everything you say, but personally I must destroy you with Charles. It's the complete opposite because even right at the end, you know, he, he, you know, the, the paralyzing is an accident and that's actually kind of slightly different from how it's sometimes otherwise been portrayed. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if in the original comics, Magneto is actually responsible, but in Ultimate it definitely was. And in Ultimate it was he sends a shard of metal because Charles is trying to escape and he sends a shard of metal to paralyze him. Mm. But in this it's an accident and the point and you know and he he cares about it and he's upset by it 
and actually and you know what and you know he sort of starts to blame moira for it because it's like oh you humans have, have caused this kind of thing and so the kind of it's the flip side because it's i can i now completely disagree with everything you say but you're my friend and i care about you and i care about your individual well-being even if you are completely wrong and we're going to be enemies it is basically he has the complete opposite relationship with charles that he does with Shaw. Mm. james can you sh- can you shed any light on that the, the in the comics is 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 it just in the ultimate version or is magneto usually responsible for xavier's paralysis or is that something so complicated we don't even want to touch it <laughs> A uh, short version is that he's not responsible. It's an alien called Lucifer. Right. Okay. <laughs> I like this version better already. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, I, I mean, and the, yeah, the, I mean, so we've we've had the scene with Shaw, and then, like you're saying, said that scene that plays out on the beach, and I love the kind of the new <laughs> the missiles kind of like slowly making their way back towards as this fight plays out, and then some of them dropping and. Ironside absolutely makes that scene. He's <laughs> oh, he's so good. Um, but yeah, yeah there's. Uh, I I just think that the the way this film handles those two characters and the way that it comes to a head in both the submarine scene and then on the beach is um, fantastic. And in a way, I'd re- I really think we lost a a great sequel which just explored those two characters without worrying about time travel and sentinels and all all that kind of jazz. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is like this is what superhero films look like when the director has his eye on the sort of how the action works as a metaphor and as exposition for character relationships. Yeah, like which, this, uh, which is, actually... this is what the genre does at its best. Like compared to things like Fantastic Four, which just have an action scene because there needs to be an action scene. But I guess, I mean, I guess the film has such free reign in that plot-wise it doesn't really have to do anything. There are certain characters it can't kill because they're going to show up in 40 years in, in the future. But, like, as a prequel, it's so far removed from the from the the rest of the X-Men movies that it's got free reign to do almost well, anything. So what it, what it does is just say, Charles, Eric, that's a relationship, that's what this film serves, and everything we put in this film relates back to that the thing that this film had on its side was that it was picking up on a basically dead franchise Mm. um and the problem that this film then creates is that it's so good and was successful that it starts a new franchise so like the freedom that it has for itself because it's following on from last stand and origins is that it can do what it wants because nobody cares um but then, as a result of it being so good, everyone cares again, so the subsequent films don't have that same freedom. And fascinatingly, has. of course, I mean, Matthew Vaughan was one of the architects of the X-Men franchise's demise in the first place, because yeah. he was attached <laughs> to X-Men Last Stand. Uh, yeah. He did a lot of the development of that movie, and ultimately jumped shit because of the schedule and various other reasons. And when this movie came around, he wasn't on any any kind of shortlist to direct. They were looking for a director and they had a short turnaround and they were really struggling to get it all put together. And it was only after Simon Kinberg saw Kick-Ass and text Matthew Vaughan and said, hey, I really like that. They started chatting. First Class came up and Vaughan went, yeah, I still really want to do an X-Men movie and came in and turned it around. And this movie, from the time that Simon Kinberg and Matthew Vaughan had that conversation to the movies being in cinema, to the movie being in cinemas was about a year. It's pretty much the situation that the Gambit movie is facing right now. So maybe they need to give Matthew Vaughn a ring if he's done with producing that Eddie the Eagle 
jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Things, I mean, you know, Matthew Vaughan has got a, a pretty good hit rate for delivering strong adaptations of comics. Um, because, you know, well, I look forward to the day that we do it, but Kick-Ass is terrific in terms of relationship to the source material. And what, James, what you were saying about, you know, a, a director who makes the action actually relevant to the themes and character is definitely something that you see from him in Kick-Ass as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but probably if we, if we end our discussion on this movie, guys, on um, going back to the comics. Now, I'm, a, I'm aware that X-Men First Class exists as a comic book, does it have? Does it bear any relation to this, or is it just a completely different beast altogether? Uh, it's basically a sort of continuity into comics set in the early days of the seventies X Men. So, isn't it the sixties X Men? Oh, sorry, I'm thinking of Uncanny X Men First Class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, X Men First Class is a continuity into set in the period between X Men being turned into a reprint book and relaunching with new stories. Right. Okay. So there was a four year period where that. It was it was selling well enough to keep publishing, but not well enough to do new stories. So John Byrne, who's a you know a famously a famous big X Men creator from the franchise's heyday, went and did a load of extra stories that fit in that gap. But that's not oh, no first class is more recent. It's Jeff Parker, isn't ah, it? Sorry, I'm thinking of Hidden Years. <laughs> <laughs> no, for, yeah, first I can't believe James has got something wrong about X Men. I'm going to leave, I'm gonna <laughs> leave all of that in. It's great. Um, Yeah, so First Class is basically um, a series that goes back and, you know, covers the early days of the original 60s X-Men lineup. The problem is there are too many continuity into X-Men series. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm right in thinking that that's that's more like that's not a a Charles and Eric movie and that's not a comic. And so is is there a comic that goes back and looks back at those two or is there ever a comic where the Cuban Missile Crisis is the thing? There is. No. There, there? Is, oh. there is a comic that, like, basically after this movie came out, they went, oh, ah, yeah, right, let's, okay. let's do a Magneto and Xavier comic. Right. It's called First X-Men. And basically they did this movie and then they put Wolverine and Sabretooth in it as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think the only characters in First Class, the comic, who were in First Class, the film, are probably Xavier and Beast. Because the original X-Men lineup is Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Jean Grey, uh, Angel, Iceman and Beast. <laughs> So pretty much all of those had already been used by the other films. So Beast was the only one that they could bring in. I mean, I think this is this is when I I really love the idea of of comic books being just being source material for movies, where you can just take these ideas from the page or ideas that you've explored and just go, okay, these characters exist, and there are other characters that I can find and and borrow, and like, yeah, maybe some of this completely conflicts with what's on the page and completely conflicts with what we've done in movies before, but we've got a central idea and we can just do something interesting around it, and okay, do we have to change that character to make it fit really well, or does that character from that comic, is that villain going to work in this story? Um, yeah, the Hellfire Club, Club could work as a 60s villainous organisation, and can we, what's happening in the 60s, the Cold War? and the, I just love the way that it kind of all falls together in service of a story, and yeah, sure, I love when, you know, when certain comics adapt certain arcs or take on certain certain you know focused ideas from the comics but this 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 for me is the perfect kind of loose adaptation of a comic Mm. book yeah i mean maybe it's that i'm not hugely emotionally invested in x-men continuity in the way that say james (laughs) might be but 
I think as far as comic book movies go, this is one of the ones where I am least bothered about it being a complete deviation from the source material. You know, there are plenty of other instances, and we've already talked about them, where I will get annoyed about significant things being changed. But, you know, I pretty much everything works for the better here. And, and this film in and of itself is probably one of my favourite X-Men stories that I've encountered, full stop. You know. I would be compl- I would have been completely happy for them to also say, okay, the, the the continuity resets here. This is the new this is new status quo for the continuity, and we, I mean, because it does feel like they're falling over themselves at the moment to find ways that characters can show up at ter- certain mm. times, and that we will we reset an entire timeline so that these characters can exist here and know it, and it all makes sense, even though some of it doesn't. Uh, I, I wish they'd had the guts to make it a straight-up reboot. And the thing is, it could have been a straight-up reboot and still had the Wolverine scene in. Because, again, we've talked about this yeah. before. It is possible to have the same actor playing the same character across two completely different continuities. If if James Bond can do it, I don't see why <laughs> comic book movies can't do it with J. Jonah Jameson J. Wolverine. Simmons, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, going to happen. So I, God, you know, what you... if he is in Jessica Jones? <gasps> <laughs> I would die. I would he won't be, die. but it would be amazing. No. <laughs> No, they're not. They can't even use um, the Daily Bugle in those shows yet. No. <laughs> okay, well, guys, um, I, I think it was a, it was a good X Men first class chat. But what comics are you going to recommend me based on this movie? Okay, so I talked briefly about X-Men First Class, the comic that it's based on, and how that's a comic about the early days of the original X-Men. I'm going to recommend you a different comic about the early days of the original X-Men. Is it any of the ones that James has mentioned already? (laughs) No. (laughs) That's impressive. (laughs) Yeah, um, it's X-Men Season 1. Um, which the season one books are sort of standalone graphic novels that Marvel started to put out. And they're weird because what they do is they are set in actual Marvel continuity, but in the early days, but as if the early days are in the present day. So it's sort of, it pulls the sliding timeline up to the present day. So it's a little bit like Ultimate in that it's kind of retelling these old stories with a modern slant. But where it differs from Ultimate is that it is the current continuity. So while they can change some details and change the kind of feel of it, they don't change the overall basics of the story and the characters. So X-Men Season 1 is basically, it's it's from the perspective of Jean Grey as she joins the X-Men. And it's kind of like her first year with the X-Men. Right. Um, so while most of the characters in it aren't characters from this film, um, Beast is in there because he's in the original lineup, um, you do get a bit of the um, Charles and Magneto relationship, although obviously it's the relationship when they're older. Um, but Magneto is the kind of primary villain in it. Um, it's just, it's really, it, it, it's, re- it's an entertaining read. I think it's a quite nice um, light introduction to the X-Men. It's written by Dennis Hopeless and it's drawn by a certain young man you may have heard of called Jamie McKelvey. Um, and the thing I like about that, it means that on the spine, it says Hopeless McKelvey, which, <laughs> you know. um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really enjoyable. And the character of, of Jean, um, is really, um, well-defined in it. I think, I think, I think she makes a really engaging lead character. And I think, I think it's partly responsible for the decision to have a teenage version of Jean Grey be such a prominent character when they did all new X-Men recently, but that's a whole other story. So this is just, it's not hugely relevant to this film, but it's about the early days of the X-Men. And if if you haven't read many X Men comics, I think it's a good introduction. Excellent, uh, James. What have you got for me? Uh, so what Seb has given you is a kind of good introduction to X Men. So what I'm going to give you is uh, a very bad introduction to X Men, which <laughs> also happened to be my introduction to X Men. So make of that what you will. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend a crossover from 1993 
called Fatal Attractions. Oh, God. <laughs> which is, this is a crossover in which Magneto uh, sort of re-emerges after a period of inactivity to threaten the entire planet. And all the various X-Men teams uh, club together to fight him. It's like basically every character from the franchise at the time appears in this story. Uh, but but it, you're telling me it's bad. It's not a bad comic. Like, it's a, No, it's a great crossover. <laughs> it is a bad introduction to X-Men because I can't... Like it, it does the 90s thing of relying so much on you understanding sort of previous relationships that... You know, it's gonna. I think you'll struggle with it. But on the other <laughs> hand, I picked it up fresh off the cartoon and loved it, and it made me love X Men. So you know, I, th- I think it's one of the first X Men comics I ever read. Actually, it's yeah, got right, a really, exactly, really famous it, yeah, moment involving Magneto and Wolverine. Yeah, it sold really well, so a lot of people will have read it first. Like that's just how it is. So you know, by all conventional wisdom, you shouldn't pick this comic up and become an X Men fan. <laughs> Right. Because it should be too dense, but on the other hand, it it made people into X Men fans, so must have done something right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that, that's going to be an intriguing read then. Um, <laughs> if okay. nothing else, it will let you understand. Like when people say, "Oh God, '90s comics," you'll be able to go, "Oh yeah, Fatal Attractions." Yeah, I totally get what you're talking about, guys. I'm I'm an expert now. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch and. Um, yeah, we're sticking we're sticking close to X Men First Class. I want you to imagine a world where Days of Future Past doesn't exist. It's a oh, month well, after. That feels nice. <laughs> it's a month after X Men First Class has uh, been released, and I call you into my office and I say, "Guys, I want an idea for a sequel to X Men First Class. Just you, just just you know, still focusing on these characters that we've we've used just now. What should we do with them next?" We we haven't got we haven't got Halle Berry and Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart. They're busy. We just need to focus on these guys. What is the sequel to that movie? And uh, James, I'll come to you first. So, I mean, the the problem I always have with the X Men franchise is they focus a lot on um, Wolverine. Magne- <laughs> <laughs> they focus a lot on Magneto as sort of the the villain, and there's never really any. Uh, exploration of sort of other villainous characters in the franchise and I think the X-Men has some of the best villains in comics and they they really underuse them Um, so what I would do is given that they just killed off Sebastian Shaw I'd go back and bring back the rest of the Hellfire Club and uh, play up the fact that at one point the Hellfire Club were building Sentinels for their own use and basically, I would have um, the Hellfire Club as the villains, Sentinels as the sort of things that the X-Men are trying to stop, and maybe introduce the Hellions, which were like the Hellfire Club's version of the X-Men, so that the teenagers have someone to fight as well. Are they like, so are they being taught by Emma Frost? Yes, yeah, that was their original thing. I mean... I guess what I would do is the storyline where Magneto joins the Hellfire Club, thinking about it. But why would they build Sentinels? Because, uh, you know, controlling mutants is, a, is one of the Hellfire Club's goals. So hang on, you think the film's focused too much on Magneto as a villain, so you're pitching a film with Magneto in it? <laughs> Magneto has to be in it, but I would like to see more... <laughs> I would like to see Harry Leyland and Emma Frost take the spotlight 
Seb, what, what's your uh, pitch for a first-class sequel? Well, I'm kind of going the other way to James. So whereas James has looked for a way t- to find somebody other than Magneto for the X-Men to fight, um, I would like to find somebody other than the X-Men for Magneto to fight. Uh, <laughs> so I would just basically carry on with Eric Lenscher, Nazi hunter, because just because he's killed <laughs> Sebastian Shaw, I don't see why he can't still go around hunting down Nazis with Mystique as his sidekick. So just basically, I would just have Magneto and Mystique traveling around the world in impossibly cool locations, um, kicking all kinds of Nazi ass. Yeah, wouldn't it be cool to just go like, okay, so Magneto wants to wipe out humanity, but what if we kind <laughs> of stick, he does. But what if we kind of stick <laughs> with him for long enough because yeah. he's going around wiping out the worst of the worst? <laughs> yeah, like, he starts with the worst of humanity and then works back with the Nazis and the serial killers and <laughs> yeah. And then there it's like, oh, who's Dexter next? As Magneto. The X-Men. <laughs> and that's the that's the third part of the trilogy. I would say that's yeah. not going to sell many toys, but it's not like Marvel lets Fox do X-Men toys anyway. So Yeah, exactly. That's true. <laughs> um, I, I thought for a second there you were going to say, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a sequel where, like, yeah, Magneto is the focus, but this time he is just flat-out villain. And so instead of playing Bond, he plays Bo- Blofeld this time. <laughs> <laughs> which would be equally great. Put him, in, put Magneto in a mag, in a in a volcano lair. Well, he's got an asteroid layer, to be fair. <sighs> Joe, we've talked about this before. You're not allowed to choose your own pictures as the winner. I'm not. I'm not. Well, no, I have done in the past, and I am allowed. But no, I think uh, today. Um, I feel yours was a little bit confused, James. I don't feel like it had been quite been developed. Which is appropriate that, for the X-Men, to be fair. That might be, be because I gave you this pitch <laughs> ten minutes before we started recording the podcast. Yeah. So you, you haven't had much time to think about it. But yeah, I'm going uh, to give it to Seb today, just because I, yeah, anything that focuses more on Michael Fassbender's Magneto is... Uh, that's okay by me. Um, yeah, so Seb, you win the pitch this week. That was a shameless play for your for your vote, <laughs> focusing on Fastbender. But uh, but that is it for this week. If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future show. And aware that I haven't done this for a while, <laughs> um, thank you to uh, two iTunes users, UK Firefighter, and then perhaps the the best iTunes username I've ever seen, Sergeant Elephant Mower, uh, who both left us uh, five star reviews in the last couple of months. Uh, so that was very kind. Thanks to that. And um, if any of you guys want to do the same, we would appreciate it immensely. Uh, you can find more episodes of the show on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com or as we're a Film Divider podcast at filmdivider.com you can get in touch via Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com see you next week goodbye bye You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is a whole world beneath it. The real world. And if you want to survive it, you better learn to pull the trigger. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time, and just in time for Halloween, with Blade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 